Well, I want to join in the Amen Chorus. Uh, Just a fantastic song to be able to lead into what we want to look at today in the Word of God. Hey, it is great to see a packed house here today at Grace Life Church. There's a lot of churches that aren't meeting today. Can you believe that? Isn't that crazy? Talk about counterintuitive. Uh, We're here to celebrate Jesus Christ, who is the head of the church, who gave himself for the church. And so it's so good to see everyone here today. And so I mentioned earlier that um, I wanted to wish everyone a Merry Christmas. It is great to see everyone here this morning, and it's great to be able to have our children sing and our adults sing, and it's great to be able to gather together this Lord's Day to celebrate the birth of our Savior. That's why we're here. But you know, for the Christian, Christmas Day is so much more than just an acknowledgement of the birth of Jesus. Wouldn't you agree? For the Christian, it's, it's the great reminder of what a relationship with Jesus Christ produces. And I would contend that if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, in other words, you have at one point in time in your life repented of your sin before holy God, and you have placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and in Him alone for salvation, that you would wholeheartedly agree that our relationship with Jesus has produced in us a hope, and a joy. And it's those two great realities, those two indispensable gifts that we want to concentrate our attention on this morning. Hope on the one hand, joy on the other, and both are gifts. And so we ask the question this morning as we begin, are you hopeful? Are you full of hope? Are you joyful? Are you full of joy? If you've been with us over the course of this past month, you know that we have centered our time in the Word on the Christmas story that was read for us again this morning. But we've used as our sermon titles four familiar Christmas songs. O come all ye faithful, angels from the realms of glory, away in a manger, and then today, joy to the world. All of which are captured in Luke chapter 2 that John read for us this morning. And so today is the culmination of our Advent series, and so with all that we've considered this month, it's only fitting that we begin today by examining our life. We want to examine our life. The Apostle Paul delivered that sobering charge to the church in Corinth when he said in 2 Corinthians 13 and verse 5, he said, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you unless you indeed fail the test? You see, the test, the examination, it's pass-fail. And the test is simple. Is Jesus Christ in you? And if he is, what is your proof? And I would contend that the proof that Jesus Christ is in us, as Paul said to the church at Corinth there in chapter 13 and verse 5, I would say that the proof is that we are full of hope as his people. And we are full of joy as his people. Years ago, I remember preaching on that passage. And at the end of the message, this older guy makes a beeline to me. And I thought he was coming to shake my hand and to say, Pastor, that was a really good sermon today, but it was just the opposite. He was fighting mad. 
He looked me in the eyes and his eyes were red. He says, how dare you cause anyone to question their salvation, especially my granddaughter? And I said to him, are you serious? Are you serious? I mean, the Apostle Paul is so explicitly clear that this should be a regular part of our life that we should be asking ourselves, is Jesus Christ in us? And I said, maybe she's being convicted by the Spirit of God that she's not a believer. You should rejoice in that. You see, when a person comes to faith in Jesus Christ, there's a great change that occurs. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Why? Because Jesus abides in us. And so we ask the question again, what does Jesus Christ in us produce? And the consistent answer in Scripture is a changed life. And how is that changed life manifested? And I would contend that if Jesus Christ is our Savior and Lord, that we will possess both hope and joy. That is a part of the examination, I believe, that Paul speaks about there in 2 Corinthians chapter 13. Is your life full of hope and joy? Those are the questions that we want to answer today. As we've gathered here together today as a church, are we full of hope? Are we full of joy? And so we first want to consider this gift of hope. Because nothing's too good for my wife. A couple of weeks ago, I was out at Ollie's doing some Christmas shopping for her. The store was packed with people like me who were out buying gifts for their loved ones. So I'm in line to check out. I'm behind this grandma with her grandson, and the young boy's being very inquisitive, asking his grandma all kinds of questions about the gifts that she had in the cart, hoping, just hoping, that some of the gifts in her cart were for him Right there in front of everyone, I'm not kidding, she turns around with a loud voice. And you've got to realize there are probably 50 or 60 people in the lines there at the front of Ollie's. She turns around with a loud voice and says to her grandson, she says, boy, you need to be quiet. You're like a bad husband who talks too much. <laughs> I'm like, come on, Grandma. <laughs> it's Christmas. As we consider hope today, we need to realize that hope is a gift, okay? Hope is a gift. Biblical hope is not filled with speculation. It's not filled with angst or wondering like the little boy was doing, wondering, hoping, hoping, hoping that some of the gifts that grandma bought were for him. No, biblical hope, and we must grasp this, biblical hope is a guarantee. It is a settled reality. It is a certainty, the life of Christ in us is our hope of eternal glory. In Colossians chapter 1, and verse 27, the apostle Paul called the indwelling of Christ a great mystery. He said this, To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. You see, our hope as Christians is a sure thing. Because we possessed Christ in us. He who began a good work in us will complete it 
one day, right? Titus 2.13 reminds us that we as God's people are to be eagerly looking for that blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. In other words, we are to be focused on living our lives with his return in view. I've often asked myself over the years, would I want to be doing this certain activity when Jesus returns? Have you ever thought about that? I have pulled back from doing certain things before in my life because I thought, I don't want Jesus coming when I'm doing this. But we should be living our life with the return of Jesus Christ in view. And so the Christian is to be full of hope. We sang about it this morning. It's part of the assurance that we have as a believer in Jesus Christ. There's a certainty that Jesus is coming again to take us to glory to be with him. Now, very interestingly, as we put these two together, the Apostle Paul told the church in Rome, in, in Romans 12, 12, to rejoice in hope. Rejoice in hope. And so he pairs these two great gifts of, of assurance together. He says rejoice in hope. In other words, we are to rejoice because we have hope. Most likely when we think about the correlation between joy and, and Christmas, we think of the popular Christmas hymn, Joy to the World. That hymn was written by the great hymn writer Isaac Watts back in 1719, over 300 years ago. As of the late 20th century, Joy to the World was the most published Christmas hymn in North America. But the only thing is, Joy to the World's not really a Christmas hymn. It's not about the Incarnation. It's not about the first coming of Jesus as a babe in a manger. It is about the second coming. In all reality, it's a reminder of the perfect combination of both hope and joy. The lyrics of this hymn, Joy to the World, were inspired by Isaac Watts' interpretation of Psalm 98. And so I encourage you to turn there. Psalm 98, it speaks of the people rejoicing that Jesus will one day come as king who will rule in judgment over the earth. And so Joy to the World is not a Christmas song that describes what happened in the past, but it's a song that looks to the future with hope and joy. And so this morning as we begin, I'd like to examine with you this psalm which inspired this great hymn that we sing at Christmas time, but upon a closer look, it's not about Christmas at all. Well, as you're turning to Psalm 98, let's multitask here. If you would, take out your insert in your bulletin with the words to this great hymn of the faith. It's appropriate to read these as we move into the text that inspired them. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing. And heaven and nature sing. And heaven and heaven and heaven and nature sing. Joy to the earth, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ, while fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy. Repeat the sounding joy. Repeat, repeat the sounding joy. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. He rules the world with truth and grace, and he makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love, and the wonders of his love, and wonders, and wonders. 
of his love. Well, hopefully you found Psalm 98. I want to read it for us, and then we're going to see how the themes of hope and joy are so prominent here in this psalm, and how they should be applied every day in the life of the believer. So if you would, follow along as I read Psalm 98, beginning with verse 1. O sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done wonderful things. His right hand and his holy arm have gained the victory for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his loving kindness and his faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth and sing for joy and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Shout joyfully before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy before the Lord, for he is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Now, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time here, but we we find here in this psalm three equal stanzas. Verses 1 through 3, verses 4 through 6, and verses 7 through 9. We remember that the psalms are songs, right? It, It was the great psalter of the Jews. And so they would sing these songs over and over and over again. And this psalm, Psalm 98, exclaims the hope and joy of the true believer. And so as we consider this, we need to know that Psalm 98 is prophetic in nature. It's forward-looking. It's one of the royal psalms that proclaims the future coming of Jesus as king. Like many of the Psalms, the author of this Psalm is unknown, but many scholars believe that it was collectively written by the Jews as they returned back to their homeland after their exile in Babylon. They were full of hope and joy. They wrote a song about God's deliverance. And so as we take a closer look at this, let me just point out these three equal stanzas here. Okay, verses one through three is a look back at what our hope and joy is based on. You notice here that the look back to the past where Yahweh has done great things, wonderful things, marvelous things, where his right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation or gained the victory for him. And so he begins here in Psalm 98 with a look to the past, a reminder of all that God has done for the nation of Israel, God's chosen people. As we jump ahead here to verses 7 through 9, it's a look to the future when our joy and hope will be realized. Notice that Yahweh will come to judge the earth in righteousness and with equity. He will one day right all the wrongs. Jesus will one day come to rule and to reign from the throne of David. Jesus is not yet seated on the throne of David. I don't know if you've ever thought about it before, but there are those who say that Jesus... Those who are amillennial would say that Jesus is now seated on the throne of David, and I don't think he is. I I think we can prove it in Scripture. This is something yet future. 
that Jesus will sit on the throne of David. I don't think he's there right now. I think that's the point. And so turn with me to Luke chapter 1, and I'll try to build an argument for you. Luke chapter 1, verses 32 and 33. Verse 32, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. Okay, you see that? And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Now stay here because I want to show you something, but first, let me give you a little background. Okay, Jesus is a descendant of David, right? We know that. Psalm 132 speaks of David's throne only being occupied by those who are in his lineage. 2 Samuel 7 says, Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. And so here in Luke 1, 32 and 33, we find that Jesus is the fulfillment of this prophecy regarding David's throne. As we take a closer look here, we find there are two aspects to Jesus' future reign from the throne of David. And here they are. Function and location. Function and location. This is important because Jesus sitting on the throne of David is not now, it is yet future. How do we know that? Because of the specified function and location. Notice here, the function is he will reign, right? He will reign. But not to be missed is the location over the house of Jacob. And so the throne of David is not a heavenly throne. It is an earthly throne. Go with me to Acts chapter 2. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts chapter 2 and verse 30. Acts chapter 2, verses 30 through 32, say this, And so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus raised up again, to which we are all witnesses, Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this with which you both see and hear. Now, he's not saying here that Jesus is currently sitting on the throne of David. What he's saying is that Jesus had to be resurrected so that one day he will bodily sit on the throne of David in Israel. And that will happen at his second coming. Turn with me back a page or so to Acts chapter 1 and verse 6. Acts chapter 1, beginning with verse 6, says this, So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? That verse is important for our understanding. There will be one day a future kingdom where Jesus will sit on the throne of David. 
And this is exactly what his disciples understood as to what would be coming. And they ask him, is it now that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And look what Jesus said in verse 7. He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all of Judea and even to the remotest part of the earth. So Jesus doesn't say, hey, 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 whoa, whoa, you have missed it. Oh, you missed it. There is no literal kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom. It's a kingdom in your hearts. No. He says, look, it's not for you to know the times when I will restore the kingdom to Israel. Verse 9, and after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. And they also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you watched him go into heaven. The prophet Zechariah said in chapter 14 and verse 4 that one day at Jesus' second coming, Jesus will descend right back to the very same spot on the Mount of Olives where he ascended into heaven. So I want to give you a visual, okay? And had I not been there, it wouldn't have meant as much to me, but I'm going to describe to you what happened and what will happen. So Jesus ascends up into heaven, right? He, he lived a perfect life for 33 years. He qualified himself to go to the cross of Calvary. He was crucified on the cross. He arose from the grave in three days. He was on the earth for 40 days in a glorified body, appearing to hundreds and hundreds of people over that period of time. And then there's a time where he ascends up into heaven. And he does so, Scripture says, from the Mount of Olives. What's the significance of that? He ascends up into heaven from the Mount of Olives, Scripture says, and he will descend at the very point in which he ascended. When's he going to descend? We don't know. Scripture says that that could be at any time right? That God will usher in the end times when he is ready to do that. But let me give you the visual. And this was so profound to me when I was standing in the same place on the Mount of Olives where Jesus ascended up into heaven and where he will descend. The Mount of Olives is here. On the backside of the Mount of Olives is Bethany, where Mary and Martha and Lazarus were from. The Mount of Olives sits here, and there's a big gully, there's a big divide between the Mount of Olives and the Temple Mount. It's called the Kidron Valley. And so as you go down into the valley, that's where the Garden of Gethsemane was. That's where Jesus prayed the night before he was betrayed. Jesus will descend as the coming king and he will look straight, square into the temple which sits right across from the Kidron Valley. I mean, the visual of this is so profound. 
He is the coming king. He will, he will descend where he ascended, and then he will take his rightful place on the throne of David in the temple. It's right there. It's right there. There's no mistaking why God chose the Mount of Olives, where the great Olivet Discourse was, was preached. There's no mistake why God chose the Mount of Olives for Jesus to ascend and to descend. By the way, the Garden of Gethsemane was at the base of the Kidron Valley. And I'm walking around, and we all split up. I'm walking around, I'm thinking, is this the olive tree that Jesus prayed under? Or is this the olive tree that Jesus prayed under? Amazing. The Garden of Gethsemane, literally the Garden of the Oil Press. Now, going back to Psalm 98, we find right smack dab in the middle of the first and third stanzas, which speak of the past and the future, here in verses 4 through 6, we find this present call for all the nations to shout for joy to the Lord. Look at verse 4. Shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth and sing for joy and sing praises. Verse 5. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of the melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Shout joyfully before the king, he says. He is Lord. He is king. And so Isaac Watts wrote this hymn, Joy to the World, and he said, the Savior reigns. He will come to reign. He will come to sit on the throne of David as his descendant, and he will rule for a thousand years. And so Psalm 98 is a celebration of hope and joy. It's a look at the past, the present, and the future. And it goes without saying that the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus are certainly related. These two comings bookend the redemption that God provides to mankind through the person of Jesus Christ. That's how we began today. Examine ourselves to see whether we're in the faith. Is Christ in us? You see, his return is our hope. And because we have this hope, we should be living a life of joy. Does that make sense? I think we need to be reminded of it sometimes. I think we get so caught up in all of the world's affairs, in all the nuance of life, in all the details, in all the minutia of life, and we forget. We have hope. We have the certainty of the return of Jesus Christ to take us back to be with him forever in glory. And that should help us to know that we must live our lives with joy. We have the hope. Where's the joy? You remember that on the evening of the birth of Jesus in the little town of Bethlehem, the angel announced to the shepherds, he said, do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which shall be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there's been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. It was the good news of great joy that Jesus Christ was born. And the good news of that great joy is at the heart of the Christian life. It's interesting to me that most scholars believe that Mary, the joy-filled mother of, the, of our Lord, was Luke's direct source for the information in the birth narrative that was read for us this morning. So as we're considering both hope 
and joy today. Let's take a look at what the scriptures say about the joy that is ours in Christ. The Greek word for joy in the New Testament is kara. It basically means gladness or delight or exuberance. Joy is the result of what God has done for us and in us. Kara is a noun. Of course, a noun is a person, place, or thing. And so joy is something tangible that we can possess. Rejoice, karo, is the verb form of joy. It shows action. And so the action of joy is rejoicing. To rejoice or to be joyful means to practice joy. And the joy that we're to practice is all because of the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Some of you may be ahead of me thinking that joy is a fruit of the Spirit, right? That's what Galatians chapter 5 tells us. The fruit of the Spirit is like a two-edged sword. We find these characteristics of what the Spirit of God produces in every true believer in Jesus Christ in that passage. But at the same time, all throughout the Scriptures, Scripture tells us that we are called to practice these things. Live out our position in Christ. All throughout the New Testament, we're instructed as Christians to practice joy. So if you're taking notes this morning, I want to focus our attention on five reminders that we need to know about joy if we want to first practice joy. And the first reminder we need to know is that our joy is from the Lord. Our joy is from the Lord. In the same way that love is not a feeling, joy is not a feeling. As we said, it's a fruit of the Spirit. I probably should have this quote memorized by now. I've used it so many times, but I love it because it's a reminder about what joy is and what it isn't. John MacArthur famously has said that joy is not a feeling. It's a deep-down confidence that God is in control of everything for the believer's good and his own glory, and thus all is well no matter the circumstances. Can we say that this morning? Because of the great hope that we have as Christians, that hope should exude joy and be played out as we practice joy in the Christian life, no matter the circumstance. 1 Thessalonians 1.6 says, You also become imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. In other words, you cannot have true Christian joy unless you're a Christian, unless you possess the Holy Spirit of God. It's a supernatural joy that is given to us that we must practice. And so first, our joy is from the Lord. Now second, our joy is in the Lord. In Philippians 3.1, Paul tells the Philippian believers to rejoice in the Lord, or perhaps better, rejoice because of the Lord. This is the key to having joy. Our hope in Christ produces joy. We just saw that true joy is a fruit of the Spirit. It's from the Lord. But as we exhibit joy, we realize that our joy is in the Lord. But our joy is not only in the Lord, it's because of the Lord. So our source of joy is from the Lord. But as we practice joy, we do so because He is Lord. There was a lady that I knew of when I was growing up. Actually, she was in our church. I was just a young kid. But what, what was so striking and profound to me was that in Illinois, and I think in all states, you can probably do this, but if, if, if the license plate's not already chosen, you can choose what you want to get on your license plate. 
And this lady somehow must have known somebody because she had joy on her license plate. I mean, she's just putting it out there. Everywhere she drives, her license plate says joy. It's like these people that have the fish on the back of their car, and they're flipping people off, and they're weaving in and out of traffic going 100 miles an hour in a 30-mile-an-hour zone. You might want to take the fish off the back of your car. (laughs) This lady has joy on her license plate. She goes into the store. People see her get out of the car. There's joy on her license plate. Is this lady full of joy? I knew this lady for years and years and years, and she was the real deal. She was the real deal. This lady exuded the joy of the Lord in her life. I wanted to be like her. Is that us today? Our joy is in the Lord. We rejoice because of who Christ is, what he's done for us, and that he's coming again. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 8 and 9 says, and, you, and though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. In rapid fire action, There are so many reasons that we are to rejoice in the Lord, but let me give you five real quick. First, we rejoice in the Lord because Philippians 2.11 tells us that Jesus is Lord. He is Lord. Second, we rejoice in the Lord because Colossians 1.17 tells us that he's the creator and sustainer of the universe. So we rejoice in the Lord because of his power. Third, we rejoice in the Lord because Ephesians 5.2 tells us that he has loved us and gave himself up for us. So we rejoice in the Lord because of his great love and his grace and his mercy. Fourth, we rejoice in the Lord because Romans 8.28 tells us that he's sovereign over all things. He's working all things to good, together for our good and for his glory. And so we rejoice in the Lord because he's in sovereign control of everything. All things. Fifth, We rejoice in the Lord because John 14 and verse 3 tells us that he is coming again to receive us unto himself, that where he is, we may be also. And so we rejoice in the Lord because of his impending return. The third reminder about joy is our joy is to be constant. And I want want you to see how all this ties together. First, we saw that, that our joy is from the Lord. It's a gift from the Lord. Second, our joy is in the Lord. And now third, our joy is to be constant. Philippians 4, 4 says, rejoice in the Lord always. And so as Christians, we ought to be in the habit of rejoicing. We can put a sticker on our car because we're always in this mode of rejoicing, joy, exuding joy in the life because of the hope we have in Christ. Feelings come and go, don't they? I tell you, I, feelings are a gift from God, and so feelings are not bad, right? Sometimes in our circles, we're like, ah, don't, don't trust your feelings, and you know, feeling, feelings are a gift from God. We all have feelings, but man, I don't trust mine. Do you trust yours? I wake up one morning, man, I'm feeling all about it. It didn't take but two hours. <laughs> That feeling's gone. Now we're over here. Feelings come 
and they go. And sadly, our feelings are often driven by circumstances. But Paul is saying here that while circumstances change, our joy is never to change. We're always to be glad because God is always in control. Our joy is to be constant. Paul told the church at Thessalonica the same thing as he told the Philippians. 1 Thessalonians 5.16 says that we are to rejoice always. An interesting aside, that's the shortest verse in the Greek New Testament. Now, our English Bibles, the shortest verse is John 11.35, Jesus wept. But in the Greek New Testament, rejoice always, rejoice forevermore. It's the shortest verse in the Greek New Testament. But isn't it interesting that the shortest verse in the Bible packs the biggest punch as to how we're to live our lives as Christians? You think God did that on purpose? God's pretty blunt. He says, hey, don't be driven by circumstances. Don't be driven by all these other things in life. Your contentment, your joy rests in me. Is there anything more that we can center our attention around? Anything better that we could center our attention around on this Christmas day than that? What does Christ in us produce? Rejoice in the Lord always. The fourth reminder about joy is that our joy is not to be dependent upon circumstances. We just spoke about this a little bit. I don't know of anyone who enjoys experiencing trials. Raise your hand. If you love to go through trials, I don't think anybody likes to go through trials. We don't like conflict. We don't want conflict. We hate conflict. Trials are a part of life. But what does James say in James 1, 2, and 3? Consider it all joy, my brethren, even when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. We must need trials. For us to be perfected in this life. And then fifth, and finally, our joy is to be shared with others. Romans 12.15 says, Rejoice with those who rejoice, and weep with those who weep. I think joy is contagious. I acknowledge it's a gift from God. Some of us maybe have buried the gift. We went out in the backyard with the shovel, not now because the ground's frozen, but before it got really cold, we went out and we dug a little hole and we stuck our joy in there and we put dirt back on top of it. That's how we live. We live like we buried our joy. Who's going to remind us to go out and to dig it back up so that we can live a life that we're supposed to live for God? You see, our life should exude joy, and our joy should be shared with others. It's contagious. It is a gift for sure. It's a gift from God. It's a sure sign that we are a child of God, but it should be shared with others. And how about a a bonus? This from the Old Testament prophet Nehemiah, who said in Nehemiah 8.10, that the joy of the Lord is our strength. So it's not just something that we exude, it's something that we draw upon. 
as we make decisions in life, as we go about life's business. The joy of the Lord is our strength. So our joy is from the Lord. Our joy is in the Lord. Our joy is to be constant. Our joy is not to be dependent upon our circumstances. Our joy is to be shared with others. And it's interesting, throughout my study this past week, there are 230 verses in the Old Testament that refer to Jesus' first coming. Did you get that? 230 verses in the Old Testament that refer to Jesus' first coming. But get this, over 1,500 verses that speak to his second coming. Jesus is coming again. And then when we look into the New Testament, one out of every 25 verses talks about Jesus' second coming. Joy to the world, the Lord is come, let earth receive her king. And so we ask the question that we began with today. Are you ready for his coming? Are you a child of his? Have you trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sin? You see, for the Christian, this should be such a joyous time of the year, filled with hope. I've had dozens of people ask me today, how you doing? How you doing? It's what we do. Come to church. I walk around. I say hi to people, shake hands with people. How you doing? Good. Good. How you doing? Good. Good. Let me propose a change. What if we all started to answer that question, how are you doing, with this? I'm joyful, and I'm full of hope. I'm joyful, and I'm full of hope. That's how we are. That's how we are. We're full of joy and hope. And, and, and Christmas is the perfect reminder of the hope that we have in Jesus. Look, I like to celebrate the birth of Jesus, but Jesus didn't stay a baby, right? He lived a perfect life for 33 years. He came to the earth for a purpose, and it was to die in the place of sinners, to provide hope for those who trust in him, who trust in his righteousness and his righteousness alone for salvation. Jesus came to provide hope. So Christmas is, yes, about the birth of Jesus, but it's more. It's so much more for us. It's a reminder of the hope that we have in that babe in the manger that was resurrected from the dead after the third day that was on the earth for 40 days in a glorified body, that, that ascended up into heaven from the Mount of Olives. And guess what? He's going to descend in the same exact spot. Why? He is the coming king. There's the temple. There's his rightful throne. The Davidic throne is right in front of his eyes. He is our coming King. And you know what hope does? Hope produces joy. And joy is contagious. I think I'm going to call the state of Pennsylvania, ask them if the word joy is taken. Maybe I need to put that on my license plate. 
Do you exude the joy of the Lord? Joy to the world. That's our charge today, to, to consider what joy is. Hope and joy, they're, they're intermingled. They're, they're hand in glove. Christmas is the perfect reminder of the hope that we have in Jesus. And that hope produces joy. And so when we say Merry Christmas, it means a whole lot more than we're just celebrating the birth of Jesus. We have hope. We have joy. People ask me, hey, um, do you think anybody will come to church on Christmas Day? I said it'll be packed. Well, how do you know that? Because I know you. There's nowhere else I'd rather be. I, I, I thought about this when I was sitting down next to Kathy and we were singing the hymns this morning. Is there anywhere else I'd rather be than right here with you? Centering our attention around the hope and the joy of Jesus Christ. The only thing I could think of that I might put above being here is what if we were all together in Bethlehem? It's a stretch. I'll take it. We can just stay here. Hope produces joy. All of us are going to say the words Merry Christmas many, many times between now and the end of the day. Merry Christmas. What does it mean? It means we are full of hope and joy because of Jesus who is in us. And we want that hope and joy to be perpetuated throughout this world. Joy to the world. The Lord is come. Let's pray. Our Father, as we have con contemplated these things this morning, as we have concentrated our attention upon these two great gifts, these indispensable gifts of hope and joy, we know that you have given them to us. They're a fruit of the Spirit. These are things that are inherent in the life of the believer. Some of us have dug a hole and we put our joy in it. It's still ours, but we don't draw upon it. And so today, as we concentrate our attention on these two great gifts, may we dig it back up. May we put it on our license plate. May we let the world know that we have great hope and joy because of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And when we say Merry Christmas, we mean something completely different than the world. We thank you and praise you this morning for the gift of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.